Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast, and thank you for being with us. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. Well, it's that time of year again. An annual tradition of ours has come back around, City Church at the Movies. In this series, we'll look at three films that have all received an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. These films give insight into the worldview of our culture. Today, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid speaks from the intersection of culture and the gospel, considering the film Lion. Well, today we're beginning a three-week series called uh, City Church at the Movies. Those of you who've been with us for a while know that every year, somewhere around this time of the year, around the Academy Awards, I take a few of the movies that have been nominated for Best Picture, and we look at those movies through a biblical, uh, redemptive grid. Now, if you're new here, I want you to know that this is very different from the expositional sermons that we do where we take a passage of scripture and we look at it in depth. This is different from that. We'll get back to that. But we're doing this, this uh, these next three weeks. We do it every year about this time. It's really about our only tradition here at City Church. We haven't been around long enough to have many other traditions. This is about our only one. I was talking to a friend of mine recently about this series. And he was surprised that we would do something like this. And he, he, you know, he thought it was great, but he said it was kind of hard for him to get his head around it and about why we would do that. And maybe that's the way you feel. And you're asking, well, why would you do something like this? Well, let me just say that, that it fits in well with two of our core values as a church. We value creativity because creativity is an expression of the image of God. And we also value cultural engagement because we want to impact the city of Evansville for Christ. And to do that, we need to understand how the people around us view the world. And sometimes artists can be barometers of society. And so that's why we do this series. Now look, uh, we all know that there are some works of art that have no redemptive value at all. Uh, We're not going to be looking at those kinds of movies. We're looking at three of the top-rated movies in the world this year that were nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Today, we're looking at the movie Lion. Next week, we'll look at Hell or High Water. And the last week, we're going to look at La La Land. But because I'm not a big musical fan myself, Sean Little is going to be reviewing that movie. Now, after saying all of that, if you find yourself uncomfortable with the idea of this series, feel free to just pull your collar up and shrink down in your seat and try to pretend that you're in your favorite safe space, okay? The movie Lion, it's a fascinating movie, and it tells the very remarkable true story of a man by the name of Saru Brearley, who in 1981 was born into a a poor family in an impoverished village in rural central India. The movie begins in 1986 when Saru is only five years old. His character is played by a little boy by the name of Sonny Pawar, is how I think you pronounce it. But you don't know if I'm wrong because you don't know how to pronounce it either, do you? <laughs> Cute, oh, just adorable little boy. Saru lives with his mother, his baby sister, and his older brother, Gadu, whom Saru absolutely adores. Saru's mother works as a laborer, hauling rocks, while Saru and Gadu supplement the family's very meager existence any way they can. Saru is a happy child. He's eager to prove his strength 
by doing anything that his brother can do. But one night, after convincing his brother to let him come along to find odd jobs, five-year-old Saru gets separated from his brother. And panicked, Saru climbs aboard a decommissioned train, falls asleep, and wakes up to find it moving, taking him almost a thousand miles away to what was formerly known as Calcutta, the capital of West Bengal. By the time that he's able to get off the train, Saru is alone, five years old, in a strange land, full of danger, where he doesn't speak a word of Bengali, has no idea where he lives, where he's from, and only knows his mother by the name Mum. He doesn't even know his last name. No one can help him, and frankly, not many people seem interested in doing so. One of the things that I think is so powerful about how this movie is done is how skillfully the director and the cinematographer make us keenly aware of Saru's isolation. Just a, he's a tiny speck against a massive and unfamiliar world that's teeming with people. And his isolation, they, they help us understand his isolation because it's intensified by his inability to speak the language. Roughly half the movie is spent watching five-year-old Saru all alone attempting to survive in this huge place, scrounging for food, narrowly escaping the hands of traffickers, sleeping on pieces of cardboard, and being chased by child snatchers. And many of those uh, scenes are shot from the eye level of a five-year-old boy looking out onto this terrifying world that he finds himself in. The idea of being a child and being separated from people you love is a, it's a universal primal fear. And because the movie spends so much time uh, just on that part of things, on, on looking at it from Saru, five-year-old Saru's perspective, it allows us as an audience to emotionally engage with his loneliness and with the terror of his experience. It's heartbreaking to watch it, and its impact is even deepened by the elegant symphonic score that the scene that those particular scenes are set to but against all odds 5 year old saru survives all of that and he winds up in an orphanage along with many other orphans by the way we learn at the end of the movie that india has 30 million such orphans and over 80,000 children become orphans in India every year. It's in the orphanage that things begin to change for Saru. He's adopted by a, a warm and loving couple who are from Tasmania, Australia. The couple uh, played brilliantly by Nicole Kidman and uh, David Wenham. This couple, they're, rel they're relatively well-to-do. They're very sincere and they raised Saru along with another adopted uh, Indian boy in comfort and with a great and sincere and genuine love. Now fast forward 20 years. Saru is now a young man, played by Dev Patel. You saw him on the trailer just a moment ago. Some of you might know him from the movie Slumdog Millionaire. His Indian roots 
have all but been erased by a childhood and an adolescence living with his family there in Australia. Saru now leaves home. He's a grown young man. He leaves home and he goes off to Melbourne, Australia to study hotel management. Meets a girl there. She becomes his girlfriend. One night they go to her, uh, they go to a party in an apartment with some of her friends who also happen to be Indian. As they're talking, Saru has this pat story that he's learned to tell over the years. And he just says that he's from Calcutta and he's been adopted. But one of the things that's clear is that as he is sitting there in this apartment with these other, these other people, is that even though his roots are the same as theirs, it's clear that he can't relate to them culturally. He doesn't relate to them as Indian. And it almost seems as if it doesn't really bother him, like he doesn't really seem to care. But then something happens there in that apartment at that party that night that awakens Saru to an insistent and unquenchable pull to find his birth family once again. And the question that the rest of the movie answers, of course, is how? I mean, how do you find your family when you don't even know where you're from? How could you ever find your home? And is it even possible to find your birth home and your birth family after so many years have passed? That's sort of where this movie goes. How many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hand. Okay. A bunch of you have not seen it yet. And so because of that, I'm not going to spoil the ending. Let me just say one thing about the ending that won't spoil it because you won't know why I'm saying it. Here it is. Just make sure you have Kleenex with you. And I'm talking to you guys, too, because, listen, I'm not much of a crier, but I'm sitting in that movie. I've got my wife, my 22-year-old son, my 20-year-old son, and my 18-year-old son, my 19-year-old son. Sorry, he's 19. And all I'm going to say is that I'm glad that the movie theater was dark. That's all I'm going to say. It was rough. Just say that much. As I reflected over the movie, and I, as I watched clips of the movie again afterwards, there are so many issues that this movie raises that I thought would be great to talk about today, like the issue of adoption and how adoption can sometimes muddle uh, notions of racial identity. Or I thought, well, we could talk about the plight of orphans all over the world, but we could talk about tragedy and loss and pain and heartbreak, and all of those would have been fantastic topics for sermons. But there's something else that stood out to me even more about this movie. It occurred to me, as I reflected over, that this movie is an almost perfect allegory of the way many of us are drawn into a search for our eternal home and our eternal family, okay? For instance, let me just start with this. I want to start with the sense of unresolved yearning that is at the very heart of this movie. And let me explain that in this way. Once Saru is adopted, he's, he's safe. And in relative terms, he's richer than he could have ever dreamed of being. And yet at the same time, deep down, he has this ache, this aching sense of homesickness, a feeling that he's actually a citizen of a different kingdom. It's as if there is this great 
piece, giant piece of the puzzle that's missing in Saru's life that keeps calling him from deep inside his soul. And that it, you know, it ultimately leads him to an arduous search for home. And I wonder if you've ever felt that. Like, have you ever felt like there's a piece of the puzzle of your soul that is missing that you just can't seem to identify? Ever felt that? Told you a few minutes ago that something happened in that apartment with his girlfriend and her Indian friends that surfaced Saru's longing for home. They're all sitting in the, I guess, you know, the main room, the den of the apartment uh, in kind of a small group, just talking. And Saru excuses himself from the rest of the group and he goes to the kitchen. And there on the countertop in the kitchen, he sees something that transports him back to his childhood in India. Something that he and his brother, Gadu always hungered for but could never afford. And it was a, it was just, it was a fried dough treat known as julebi. Julebi. Have you ever noticed in your own life how powerful the sense of smell and taste is and like how it can bring back memories from, from long ago? Saru smells this and then he tastes it. And memories from his childhood that have been arch, uh, archived away in the recesses of his mind for years, these memories begin to surface. And he slumps. You can see him. He just, he, it's like he has to catch himself on the counter. Are you okay? Asks his girlfriend. And then after a long pause, he finally admits to her and to the others that the Pat story that he told a little while ago is really not true, that he's not from Calcutta after all. And he says, I'm lost. A few weeks ago, late on a Sunday night, I was the only one up in our home. And um, I mean, like everybody was in bed and I, I turned on some music and I was in a, playli- a playlist that I have very creatively named, Stuff I'm Really Enjoying Right Now, anyway. <laughs> and I had, I had it on shuffle and so it, you know, it was randomly playing songs. And uh, it came on a song that's actually been in that playlist for quite a while, longer than anything else in the playlist. It's a beautiful song. Uh, More for the music than the lyrics, but there's there's this one section of the song that I find particularly beautiful. It might not even affect you, but for me, it's just like particularly beautiful. And I can't can't explain what happened that night as I listened to it. Um, I've had this happen a few other times in my life, right? But I realized that I could actually feel the beauty of that song like welling up in my chest. And, and as, as I listened to it, it made me conscious of an ache, like a, like a sadness, like a longing in my soul. And I have to tell you, it's, you know, It's not something that I can explain in any rational way. In one sense, it made me sad, but it wasn't because the song was sad. I mean, the song isn't sad, and it's actually quite beautiful. But it was so beautiful, it just made me hurt. And I wonder if you've ever had that feeling. 
Ever you saw something so beautiful or experienced something so beautiful that it just made you, made you hurt, made you ache, made you aware of something like this longing that's in your soul? The Bible seems to say that this is a universal human experience. Back in the Old Testament, one of the great kings of Israel, his name was Solomon, he wrote this in, in a particular book of, that he had written called Ecclesiastes, and he said this, that God has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He set eternity in the hearts of human beings. And then the Apostle Paul uh, says it in the New Testament. And he says kind of the same thing. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's talking now about people who have believed in Jesus Christ. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What he's saying is that there is this ache, this longing that God has put in our soul. And that sometimes if if you pay close attention, when you see something or when you experience something profound, you'll sense it. You'll feel it. C.S. Lewis once wrote about it. And he wrote it in this book called The Weight of Glory. And I'm going to read a section to you from that book. And I'm just going to tell you from the outset, it's kind of lengthy, this section, but it's worth it. And we're going to put the words up on the screen so that you can read along. I think it'll maybe help you stay with me. Lewis says, I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which, notice the word, hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We can't hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of our name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and to behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we entrust it to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country that we have never yet visited. See, what both the Bible and C.S. Lewis are 
saying is that the ache that that beauty of that song surfaced in me was a yearning, not for the song, but a yearning for an eternal home that I was meant to live in. Because number one, I'm created in the image of God. And number two, I'm a citizen because I've believed in Christ. I'm a citizen of a completely different kingdom. One that's very different from the world in which I live in right now. And so there is this longing for that that's in my soul that sometimes appears as an ache. It's an unresolved yearning for a home that I belong to but have not yet experienced. And somewhere within each of us is that ache. An unresolved yearning for a world very different than the world that we live in. And I tell you this because it's important that you know this. So that you can identify it next time you feel it. And so that you can understand its, its purpose. You might be sitting some night watching the stunning beauty of a sunset. You might be camping out some night and look up and see the and just be in awe of the starry heavens. You might be reading a deeply moving story or poem. You might be listening like I was to a piece of music. Or it might be the smell and taste of something from long ago, but something unique to you will surface that ache, that yearning in your soul. It'll be your julebee. And like Saru, the purpose of that when you feel that, is to send you on a journey for home. Not your physical home. Be careful. Don't, you know, like C.S. Lewis says, you're going to be tempted to call it nostalgia for the past. Don't, it's not that. It's, a journey, it's meant to send you on a journey for your eternal home. For your eternal home. And if you've already believed in Christ, that when you feel that longing, because you will, thank God for it. Let it create in you a joyful expectation of that eternal home. But for others of you, maybe, maybe you've never come to that place where you've believed in Christ. The next time that that happens to you, the next time you feel that, don't ignore it and don't, don't misinterpret it. And don't think that it's just nostalgia or that it's just that you need more of that, whatever it was you saw. Know that it's It's meant to lead you like Saru on a search for your, not physical home, but your eternal home with the Lord Jesus Christ where every longing of yours will be fulfilled and where you will find that missing puzzle piece to your soul and where you will find all of the meaning in life that you've always looked for. Pay attention to that. Next time you feel it. And let it lead you home. So many other things that I I wish I had time today to talk about from that uh, movie. Gosh, I mean, there are so many great themes. But I got to save those things for another day because I want to end on something else. And it has to do with Saru's older brother, Gadu. There's this scene in which Saru is trying to explain to his girlfriend why he feels compelled to go on this search for his 
physical home when the odds are that he's likely never going to find it, never going to find his home or his people. And he tells her, in fact, you might have seen it in the, you might have caught it in the trailer a minute minute ago. He tells her that he knows his older brother, Gadu, is looking for him still. And he says that it's as if he can hear Gadu wandering about, calling, Saru, Saru. And he says to her, my real older brother has been calling my name every day. And you know what? If you, if you think about it, if you think biblically about that movie, you'll realize that in many ways that movie is reenacting the gospel even though it never intends to do so. How so? How so? Well, first, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our older brother. Let me read this to you. It's from Hebrews chapter two. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, watch this, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Who's that talking about? Who's the pioneer? Jesus, that's right. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So Jesus is your older brother in the sense that if you've believed in him, you've been adopted into the family of God through his suffering. Now, not only that, but I want you to watch this in Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15 chapter 15, to describe his searching love for you. One of those parables, Sean has spent the last two weeks on. But here's one of the others. Jesus likens you to a profoundly valuable coin, and he likens himself to a woman who has lost that coin. And he says, he says suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and Search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and she says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. You understand what this is saying? What the Bible is telling you here and what this movie is reenacting is that just as Saru thought that he could hear his older brother, Gadu, calling for him every single day, if you listen closely enough, the Bible's telling you, If you listen closely enough, you can hear your older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, searching for you too, calling your name. And you ask, well, how? How can I hear the Lord Jesus Christ call my name? Well, let me answer a question with a question. Do you think it's a coincidence that Saru came across Julebee in that apartment in Melbourne, Australia that day? You think that's a coincidence? That particular day with those particular Indians, that particular food that awakened a memory from so long ago, do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. Do you think it's a coincidence that when you came across that song that awakened in you that longing or or that sunset that you saw that awakened in you that longing, 
or that starry sky or that piece of poetry that awakened in you a longing for something that you couldn't identify but now know is a longing for your eternal home? Do you think those times, do you think that was a coincidence? I'm going to tell you, it's not a coincidence. That's your older brother searching for you, crying out your name in the way that he, that only he knows, will get your attention through a song, through a movie, through something that you tasted, through a story, through a poem, through any number of things. That's your older brother calling your name. And not only that, not only that, there's another way that you can hear Jesus' voice. As your older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, hung on a Roman cross, and the Bible tells us that he cried out in agony and he, he, he asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer that rung out among all of the angelic beings in the cosmos was your name. That's why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer was Ruth Ann Bartelheim. The answer was Pat Townsend. The answer was Kevin Whitaker. The answer was your name. All you've got to do is look at the cross and you can hear the voice of Jesus crying out for you by name. If you've responded to that call and you've believed on Jesus already, tell your older brother, Jesus. Tell him how much you adore him this morning and thank him for what he did for you to bring you home. But if you haven't responded to that call, Right now, right here, in this moment, in this place, realize that the Lord Jesus Christ brought you here today to this church so that you could hear him calling your name in this sermon about that movie. And it's no coincidence that you're here today. And it's no coincidence that this is what we're talking about today. And right now, in your seat, in the privacy of your seat, would you just respond to his cry for your for you and your name my god my god why have you forsaken me and the answer is you your name is why god forsook jesus on a cross he died on the cross for your sins so that he could take you to your eternal home Listen to that ache, to that longing. Listen to Jesus on the cross. And know that he's searching for you. Would you bow your heads with me? those of you who are here today that have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, never thought that he would love you so much, that he would call out your name, that he would search for you. This would be a great time to respond to him, to believe in him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and ask Jesus to be your savior. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised again from the dead. 
And the Bible says that when you believe that, that you find there that you've been adopted into a new family, that you become a brother or a sister of your older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is reserved for you a place in an eternal home that one day you will experience, but that even today you will find that you become a citizen of a new kingdom, a kingdom that you have never been a part of before, one that's very different from the world that we see that operates on a completely different set of principles than the world that we see around us, one that operates on the basis of something called grace, undeserved favor demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. Would you just respond to him now? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for things like movies that can uh, speak to us about eternal things. They can sort of sneak into our hearts and our souls and create in us a longing for something more. Lord, we thank you for this movie. We thank you for what you did in this young man's life. We thank you that it was brought to the, to the movie screen. Lord, we mostly pray that you would use it to awaken in people a longing for a home, an eternal home. And Lord, that you would use that to bring many people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, even though the movie never mentions his name. But there would be many who would come to a relationship with him. Lord, we pray this now in your name. Amen. The cross changes everything. Our older brother, the Lord Jesus, calls out to the sons and daughters of God to come home. Next week, as we continue our annual City Church at the Movie series, we'll turn our attention to the film Hell or High Water. We'd love for you to join us at either 9.15 or 11 a.m. here at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville. In the meantime, you can connect with us at citychurchevv.com or on social media at citychurchevv.com.